Welcome to the conversations with Jason Campbell and Henrietta Galina. Hello, Henrietta. Hi, how are you? I am doing well. I'm doing well. We are in, we're still in quarantine mode. And I have to say, I have been making the best of quarantine. I've been incredibly productive. And um, I don't mind it, I got to tell you. Yeah, on a lesser scale, but sure, same. <laughs> It's always nice to dial out, though. It's always nice to or have people out there in the world dial in, as in the case with our with our episode this week. We have a we have a guest, a fantastic guest. <laughs> Why do you introduce our guest? Sure. So today um, we have the absolute privilege of speaking to Kimberly Jenkins. Um, who is someone who I've admired for a long time, followed her work for a long time. Jason, I know there's a lot of affinity with your thinking um, and alignment there too. So I'm really happy to introduce Kimberly Jenkins. Hi. Hi. It's a pleasure How- to be here. This is it. Join you both. Oh my God, the <laughs> honor is ours also. Um, so we have quite a lot to talk about. I think uh, obviously a lot of your work really covers a lot of the cross-section of what we, Jason and I, cover on the podcast. And actually a lot of what you do has been largely the impetus, like those conversations have been the impetus for this podcast. So for everyone who's listening, um, would you mind breaking down sort of who you are, what you do, what your practice is in your own words, so that everyone gets a really good idea of your background? Sure. I am am an assistant Professor of Fashion Studies at Ryerson University in Toronto, Canada, um, and that is effective January 2020. Um, what led to that um, sort of prestigious role um, that I'm just incredibly grateful for is due to the fact that I've spent the last, let's say, four, four years, solid four years, um, exploring um, it's sort of a niche topic within the field that I work in, which is fashion studies. And that niche field is um, the intersection of fashion and race. And so that has sort of involved developing and designing a course at Parsons School of Design, which was my previous institution, um, called Fashion and Race, um, putting on an exhibition in 2018 called Fashion and Race, um, 2017, I created a website called the Fashion and Race Database, um, which you can go to as at, it's uh, fashionandrace.com or .org. And that is that was designed to be sort of a open source, all-encompassing sort of database, uh, working document of resources for uh, anyone who is interested in learning more about the intersection of fashion and race. Um, more largely... Uh, or universally, I, um, since 2013, have been a lecturer of uh, fashion history and theory, um, which is situated in the field that we call fashion studies. So um, I teach uh, contemporary fashion, like basically mostly fashion from the 19th century up into today, modern fashion, and um, New York fashion, research methods for fashion students, um, all of that, Uh, and especially one of my favorite classes, which is like um, contextualizing fashion. So kind of helping students understand why we wear what we wear, all the sociopolitical implications of it. So, um, since 2013, um, I've used my master's degree in fashion studies to just kind of explore why we wear what we wear on every level. Um, so yeah, so, so that's kind of led up to this exciting new chapter of being a professor last year. Also in building up to that, I was hired by Gucci to help them um, in terms of fashion and race. So um, they were dealing with some some issues that called for cultural awareness and sensitivity. So that really kind of opened doors in terms of what I could do with this degree, where, you know, it's not just about um, fashion studies in a classroom. This is something that can help enlighten major luxury brands. So, so yeah, that's kind of my work in a nutshell. Yeah, your work is so important. And I know Jason feels the same. We sort of wish that we had taken such classes coming up in our education and informative sort of thinking, because I think we tend to look at fashion as this kind of 
inanimate object, you know, it's, a, it's an object um, or a practice, but there's also a psychology and a huge sort of social cultural component to it that is super fascinating. And um, yeah, I love that you're creating spaces for us to really engage with that in a more meaningful way. And in many ways, Kimberly, I feel like I have uh, gone about my career uh, with a this invisible curriculum, um, not dissimilar to <laughs> the one that you're teaching at, at in the universities, because that's that's how I, I, I view fashion. And in this conversation, I am particularly keen on also drilling down on that intersection between race and the business of fashion, which I, which I know is also uh, quite a focus for you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, I can relate also, I mean, the class that I created in 2015, 2016, it officially launched in the fall of 2016 at Parsons School of Design. Um, yeah, it was the class that I wish I had. And so in all the resources I've been building, it's been something that I wish I had. And uh, you know, I, I'm even embarrassed to say a lot of the things was, they were things that I was learning on my own and, and unlearning and relearning. And so um, I kind of envy also the undergrad students who get to take those classes I create. And many of those students, you know, are already well-versed in all of these kind of systemic um, structures of oppression that we're pushing up against, you know, and just like, wow, I was yeah. like, oh my gosh, you're already there. I like... I, w- I wish that was me like 20 years ago. So, Well, that's yeah. what's really interesting about what you do, actually, because I think that we all have the experience and the lessons. We tend to learn them the hard way in practice and reality of just the day-to-days of living in society and culture and more specifically in the fashion industry and these fashion spaces. But what's really great about what you do is you're offering a more academic and almost legitimate forum to be able to have these discussions because they tend to be either behind closed doors, one-on-one, or um, kind of shunned from a larger sort of public uh, conversation or even internal conversation in these companies so it's we're so excited to just have this conversation with someone who is so uniquely positioned to have it well and thank you for providing this platform with your podcast and exploring these things um so it, it's equally helpful <laughs> to have a space to work these ideas out well so just to kick us off i guess we'll um it's less of a formal question it's more like the lens in which we want to talk about fashion and race, because there are a few components at play, particularly with the current pandemic. Um, but the, the question is really, I get all well, the conversation rather is really framed around this idea of the illusion of inclusion, mm-hmm. which is something we sort of spoke briefly about previously. And how deep is that in in the fashion industry, I was quite intentional with the idea of like, how deep is it? Because I really think this is a great opportunity to really dissect where and what that looks like Mm -hmm. in our industry. Yeah. And hold on one second, Kimberly. I think it's important uh, for us to also contextualize that conversation within this podcast as well, uh, Kimberly, because we have been we've been discussing this from from a few different sides. And actually, we had a fantastic conversation in our last episode with um, uh, Gabriella from uh, Garage Magazine and also uh, Ronan, who is a photographer. And we spoke about these issues as this lens through the creative process and and what was happening pre-COVID and what may happen post. And prior to that, we have really been, as two Black professionals in this business, this has, I would say, this is one of our big issues, one of the most important issues um, to us in this podcast since its inception. And so we've stayed on top of that. And one of the things that I say we have identified is that we saw that there were some changes. There, We saw that there were some changes in this industry uh, where there was greater visibility uh, in terms of where uh, Black and brown people were concerned. Um, we saw all of these gaffes, you know, for these major brands from Prada to Gucci and so forth, where they had to confront this racial issue head on. So this issue of race, I think we would all agree, race and fashion has been quite a topical one, particularly over the last couple of years. And Henriette and I have really been discussing it from not just like, oh my God, well, we see more Black people in this industry. How great, fantastic. We have drilled down just to understand how authentic, how legitimate those those moves have been, and and, and certainly how sustainable they, they will be. 
And I think um, this juncture, this is a great point of understanding um, from you being a being a, a lecturer and and quite someone who has literally lived her life in this space to get a sense of where we were before. And I would I would love even you know further back with all the historical uh, historical sort of uh, references to this conversation, but where we were before COVID, and then we'll certainly get into you know what that picture may look like afterwards. But if you could paint that picture for us. I, I I would greatly benefit from that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, oh gosh, where to start? So interestingly, I was just reading through an article this week um, that was from actually a year ago, and it was an interview with a scholar by the name of Nancy Leong, and I, I'm starting to read through her uh, Harvard Law Review paper about this topic, and um, she's basically theorized and written at length about this concept of um, racial capital. Racial capitalism, actually. And so uh, racial capitalism is this practice by corporations and institutions, mainly with the power brokers being white, where they use non-white bodies in effort to uh, reach a profitable means. So in other words, that could come through in advertisements, using non-white bodies to advertise their company or their brand as diverse, quote unquote, which will help kind of draw more attention. And they can sort of reap all the benefits of being, or at least appearing, diverse. And so it, it becomes more profitable for them. This could be fashion brands also that rely on um non-white bodies to kind of show they're cool, they're with it, they're into diversity, they're not racist. And really at the end of the day, it is just to kind of kind of shore up their profits. And so in terms of history, I, I want to kind of just bring in her research because one um, aspect of history that she brings up is around 1978, which was around the time when the Supreme Court had kind of affirmed the, the purpose and use of affirmative action and that diversity was key to substantiating or justifying affirmative action. And from there, affirmative action has been really kind of rooted in the practice of showing diversity or representing or modeling diversity. And so in terms of fashion and bringing it back into a fashion conversation, I remember growing up in the 1980s and 90s and loving fashion even as a child and and noticing that I actually found fashion to be more diverse, um, more colorful, more flavorful. It wasn't so much a conversation about race, uh, the race of the models or anything like that. It wasn't as highly politicized. And then something happens by the late 90s and the early aughts where really the late 90s where we start to see kind of this pivot in terms of aesthetics and and beauty. And it's really kind of popularized by this new guard of designers coming out of Europe, Raph Simmons and Demi Lemeester, um, who are using kind of these more thin Eastern European models in some ways. Also Calvin Klein, um, also popularizing the waif look through models like Kate Moss. And by the early aughts, you have this sort of, era of like the Brazilian model. So you have models like Giselle coming out, like one of the most white passing models coming out of Brazil. So the aesthetic starts to shift and people getting pushed out of it and to the margins uh, is the great diversity of black models, especially in brown models. Um, again, in the 80s and 90s, we saw uh, far, a far greater spectrum of models of color. And it starts to become a little more homogenous by the early aughts, for sure. And, and so the, the, the few Black models we see surviving during that time are either kind of like these white passing, almost, um, uh, Black models, or you had to be kind of, quote, unquote, very Black, uh, someone looking like, like Alec Weck. So um, it, it all became very aestheticized. And um, by the late 2000s, uh, or even by 2008, I think that's when we saw it was an article um, by Vogue about do we have an issue with race? Is fashion racist? I believe is what the title was. And that's when I knew, you know, something there was some sort of change. And also by that time, you have people like Beth Ann Hardison 
who is starting to take the fashion industry to task. And several years later, she penned a letter to the industry, taking them to task about not being diverse enough in terms of the models they were using. And so things just really started to come to a head. By 2012, things really came to a head um, just in the kind of social, the greater social landscape, at least in the United States, where you have Trayvon Martin killed, the rise of Black Lives Matter. And so there's just increasing resentment that's happening by this time that is just inescapable in the fashion world. You know, when you see what's going on in the in the broader landscape. And, and it's interesting because uh, Nancy Leong, when she talks about racial capitalism, she says the thing about racial capitalism, even though it's very beneficial to these brands, these, these companies, these institutions, it actually just fans the flames of racial resentment. Yeah. You know, you've got Ooh. individuals who are just angry, you know, their bodies being essentially commodified, just used to express diversity when really um, nothing is changing, you know, systemically, structurally. There are two key things in what you've just explained through this sort of history of race and fashion, which is one, who the power players, brokers and gatekeepers are, right? They are through the 90s and and the early noughts, you reference brands like Calvin Klein and Raph Simmons, but also, you know, that wave of stylists like Katie Uh Grand and, you know, people who are making these casting decisions, uh, really uh, pushing their agendas forward in terms of almost whitewashing the industry. Then also that pivotal moment, you also have that rise of social media where people are more vocal, fashion feels more democratic. And then there's the element of needing content, needing to fill these spaces uh, to all people. So like, you know, let's bring in more people of colour, let's put more people of colour in advertising, let's show, let's show without the behind the scenes uh, machinations changing. So that kind of leads us to an interesting point when it comes to this pandemic, uh, given how many people are at work, we're now at 22 million in the US alone. The fashion industry is, I mean, it's really going down the toilet at this point. Stores are closing, layoffs, furloughs, companies looming with the idea of downsizing, bankruptcy. And as part of that, there are going to be more of us vying for fewer positions. How is that sort of racial component going to play into it when we know that fashion has predominantly been white, thin, straight? So in that fight, do you fear or do you feel that history could almost repeat itself? Mm -hmm. So one thing uh, that I found just profoundly familiar across um, various industries and platforms as I've been listening in and watching videos of people, executives and, and thought leaders from various industries, like outside of fashion, all reflecting on what sort of the COVID-19 crisis is going to do for them and to them. And it has been that, you know, this has shown, and this is also in a, from a political perspective, just watching the news also, it has revealed all the uh, inequalities that have been just kind of sitting in the dark, in the recesses. It, it's, show, yes. it's just showing, um, you know, the weak, whether it's the weakness of the American healthcare system, whether it's racial inequality from a global perspective, whether it is class and, you know, economic disparity across the world. It is showing everything. And unfortunately, this isn't something that's working in the oppressed person's favor. This is definitely, mm-hmm. if, if you could imagine or envision a huge pair of shears <laughs> in fashion, you know, sweeping through horizontally and snipping and cutting, it is all, <laughs> it is the weight of the oppressed that now is in free fall, that has been snipped off. And then what is still kind of secured at the top is all the people who are financially and economically and socially, socio-politically secure. Exactly. This, it is through this free fall in in this kind of snipping visual I'm I'm proposing, like that is the reality. So we either fall or we fly and we need to figure out what do we want to do with that? You know, because if anyone's going to be rescued right now, the people who are getting to, to stay kind of cozy and in their secure, safe position from a fashion and business perspective, it's the Zara's, it's the H&M's and all the executives, it's the Amazon and, you know, all those major brands, they get to stay intact. And what I fear is that the great diversity, the small brands, the emerging designers, all these unique voices could fall away. And, we, and, that, and that doesn't necessarily have to happen, 
but we need to figure out how can we survive this? And you know, what can we do in this new world that 2020 has presented us with? I think also what makes it more complicated is that this diversity that's being snipped away is happening at all levels, right? So it's like the diversity movement and conversation was very public facing. And I say this always, but I feel like it's so relevant more now than ever. It was so public facing. It didn't really reach the point of progression where it was in the executive corridors, the upper echelons of business, the hiring practices and the business infrastructure So therefore, the reason I'm talking about history repeating itself is the power players, the CEOs, the C-suites, the boards, they're all still white. You know, I'm yet to even see or figure out who's the the person of colour who's a CMO or a CEO or a COO. Mm -hmm. So if those are the gatekeepers, essentially, you know, we know that the C-suite executive level positions are largely safe. If they're then the gatekeepers for a post-COVID fashion landscape, I worry how diverse moving forward everything's going to be from the brands that survive right through to the people that are now being rehired in fewer positions. Does does that make sense? Yeah, I want to add tying all this together and bringing it back to the conversation about diversity and what all this means then is you're absolutely right. You know, so what do we do then if the people who get to really survive the cream of the crop of, of these brands and people in the C-suites, you know, while all the retail workers just go into free fall, while everyone else or on the lower end of the executive ranks, they all have to kind of fall away. And we just, it's a survival of the fittest. And we just have to keep only the most mm-hmm. essential, you know, roles, you know, as essential now has taken on a new um, uh, meaning as a word. And also that the themes of diversity become less important when your focus is business survival. You right. Know? So, I- but wait, 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 hold on, hold on a minute, guys. I'm, I, I actually, I feel like we accelerated to a place that I'm not sure. I'm not necessarily on board with this. And Henrietta, you may you may be shocked actually as to my position. But I mean, you guys almost are concluding that in this time. I mean, the question is still there for me. I haven't determined that there's been so much erosion of that advancement because here's my feeling, guys. I think that agency is still powerful and we are a part of that agency and I'm sorry I still feel highly empowered and the the two people that I'm speaking to on in this conversation I feel that they're highly highly empowered as well and I still with we're within a right to exercise that power and why I'm interested in having this conversation is because I want to make sure that that power is harnessed that the minute that anyone tries to dismiss all of these social injustices that we we were trying to fight um, for uh, to, to correct before this time that we're right back on that subject with the ferocity and with the intention that we had before. I don't. I, I highly disagree that 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 erosion is like is, is a foregone conclusion. And I happen to believe that brands as thought leaders will still have a place in the coming environment, and that is upon people like us to take on those roles and to call for that to still carry on. I mean, am I mistaken? Well, what what do you think, Kimberly? I mean, I wasn't saying it's a foregone conclusion. I was posing the question as will history repeat itself given these certain themes that we're seeing in terms of how people of colour are disproportionately being impacted across the board, including in fashion, but also those decision makers and gatekeepers look the same by virtue of that how are we holding them accountable when their focus is less diversity for marketing and more business survival so it's really a question it's not a foregone conclusion for me but Kimberly by all means I'd love to know what you think yeah I actually wasn't finished that's not at all what I was saying actually what I was trying to set up is just the landscape of what we're seeing right now it is a fact that many people are losing their jobs things are very desperate and so the people who are able to stay at the top and survive right now have all been executives presidents of, of organizations and um, or any other jobs that have been sort of COVID proof. So not necessarily all executives, also people just in industries that have been sort of pandemic proof right now. And so that's why I said, you know, we have the option to either fall or fly. And what I'm suggesting is that we should fly. And so that should be the option. That should be the answer. Exactly. Like um, what Jason's saying, I'm not saying we should fall or we're doomed to just fall. 
we have the option. Do you want to fall or do you want to fly? And how can we fly? Maybe one of the many things that this pandemic has revealed to us is that these systemic structures, maybe they weren't working. You know, maybe some of these systems that we've relied upon yeah. aren't working. And so that is Ooh. that it, it takes a catastrophe like this for us to realize, okay, now we're in a desperate situation. And sometimes it is through catastrophes or adversity that we have to kind of find our sense of resilience and find a new strategy uh, when everything kind of burns down, um, new ways to rebuild. And so I am optimistic and I want this to be a message of empowerment because that's what I think that we can do. But I'm also thinking about all these major brands and what they're going to do and what I don't want to see is the, the falling away of diversity of diverse brands, because that could very well happen in uh, smaller designers. You know, when we go through this reconstruction era that's going to be coming up and we start to see people slowly be reintegrated into society and people are able to open their doors again in their shops, who's going to be left? You know, is it going to be a graveyard of brands in the next six or so months <laughs> that business owners who couldn't survive and retail workers who couldn't survive and, and they've fallen away and only those brands or shops that were able to could open what, what who isn't going to be hurting is going to be Walmart and Amazon and, and all these major brands. And so I know we haven't really had a chance to fully come back to the uh, diversity conversation, but it definitely behooves them to keep, even though, you know, the priority right now has just been mere survival um, it does behoove them to keep diversity at the top of their agenda. And some of the ways that I'm seeing this happen, again, for better or for worse, but I, I remember hearing someone speak about several years ago, in the future, we're going to have kind of the next market or economy is going to be the people economy. We started seeing that about 10 years ago with Facebook, where the new market was all about human connectivity, bringing people together, whether it's a social media platform and connecting them, that's where you can make your millions and your billions even. And also with that, thanks um, to people like Bill and Melinda Gates, several years ago, they already had their finger on the pulse of the public health economy, really, and philanthropy yeah. and how that can be a moneymaker in some ways. Yes, they are trying to help people across the globe, but I have issues with sort of the new economy for philanthropy. Philanthropy isn't anything new, but now seeing it as a market where you've got people moving into philanthropic causes and even on a more uh, a smaller scale, seeing fashion, fashion like Tom's, you know, where it's this one for one business model where it is if you buy these shoes, another pair of shoes goes to help this happy brown or black person in fill in the blank country. So. What I guess I'm trying to do is paint a picture also of just sort of what is also something I predict will happen and how um, not only the strong will get stronger, but also what I fear and I'm keeping a close eye on is this new market or economy for helping those who are struggling and oppressed. And, and again, not that this hasn't already been happening, but there's going to be this market economy where the strong stay stronger and the wealthy like Bill Gates stay wealthy but they make their name and their profit from helping people and through philanthropic causes and one-for-one -one models in fashion. And even this happens in sustainable fashion. Um, it all yeah. depends on oppression still being intact. There has to be someone for you to help and you have to mm -hmm. have a heel still on your neck in order for this to work. And so that's another economy or market that I'm concerned with, especially so right now. Um, I was on Instagram a few days ago and noticed that quietly Facebook had rebranded itself. It has this kind of on Instagram, it, the font looks different and um, they have this kind of rainbow spectrum around them, around the, uh, the logo. And when you look at the new pictures that they just posted, black and brown people. And when you read the captions, it's saying basically how Facebook and Instagram has kind of enriched the lives of these smiling brown and black people and these people <laughs> in Brazil. And so, you know, oh to the unknowing eye, someone might think, oh, wow, that's so wonderful what Facebook is doing. That's, that's the new economy and market I'm actually concerned about because if you're if you're not really keeping a critical eye on this, you're going to see it as we're moving into this new um, kind of euphoric era where we're all holding hands and it's all about diversity and harmony and peace and love, humanity. And I'm hearing a lot of CEOs talking so, about humanity and how we all need to just come together. But no, there's a market for this. And there's actually going to be a whole new framework of oppression involved in that. 
how do we harness that critical eye, Kimberly? You know, how do we how do we hold these institutions to be culturally sensitive corporate um, entities? So two ways, so like a two prong, but not to say this has to be the only way to do it. One way from a structural level, we need to disrupt it by having people of color, anyone from any kind of racialized or oppressed community in a leadership position leading the charge on things like this. If we want to have a conversation about helping people and supporting various economies around the world that are in crisis mode, like various other countries that have been dealing with pandemics or epidemics, I want to see people of color making, I want to make it plain here, I want to see people of color running these programs and ideas. But also it doesn't just take superficially, you know, a person of color because, you know, skin folk ain't always kin folk. You know, they also need to be um, actually yes. have a concern of empowering the community, driving the community, reaching back as they climb. So hiring even more people who look like them and being part of this conversation and all reaching towards liberation in one way or another for these people to break the shackles of people always oh. needing help. And so just first, you know, just again, having the leadership there. And also on a superficial level, if I may, representation is so important. Image making is so important. And so it really gets under my skin when I see things like the Facebook rebranding. Well, you know, sure, you could argue, yeah. but they're doing something, you know, it's, it's making, you know, they're able to connect with people and they're able to see their dreams come true. But what I'm tired of seeing is, and not to say that it was all white people maybe who came up with this, but I'm, I'm also tired of the white savior impressions, these representations that I see. And I see this a lot in sustainability. If you like, I just went on someone else's Instagram account and um, they're an editor and they were like holding a black child and just topple the new fashion industry in Nigeria is and how they're so inspired and how it still has these kind of narrow, <laughs> bumpy roads, you know. So she started using this language to show how raw and authentic this part of Africa still is and how she just loves it and how they haven't been gentrified. So it, it's complicated because she's saying she's making an oh. anti gentrification statement. But she's also insisting that they need to look kind of raw and bumpy, you know, and have that kind of aesthetic in her mind in order to be real. And that, you know, I'm so proud right. of them. And look at the colors, the richness. It still reduces and flattens what Nigerian people can be in fashion. And so it really bothers me. And so, you know, her just showing the slideshow of pictures of her holding black children and applauding, you know, the fashion show. I want to see... Images, like, I, I think one disruptive uh, representation is like Aura James from Brother Valleys. That kind of disturbs that representation that you're so used to seeing, where it's like a white designer having a brand or a collection that is co-designed with these African artisans. You've got Aura James, who is a woman of color, doing that very thing. So that, I love representations like that because it disturbs this notion that it only must be white designers who are reaching back and helping all these happy brown black. you know she's looking at them as no we're co-designers we're collaborators we're partners in this you know this isn't me coming down to your country or you know your community and having you produce these things and then I can go to bed at night all happy that I you know helped these people so she's doing something that is empowering uh, in that way but not in a condescending way so that's a superficial response also of how representation can um, help move us forward with this new people economy that I see really gaining speed. And then, of course, you know, just having people in power, that's the biggest nut to crack right now, because as businesses are in survival mode, you know, it, how can we get how can we drive these diversity initiatives but then there's, you know, this alternate argument where you also have a group of people who I don't necessarily disagree with, who also believe I don't need to sit at your table. I don't want to be welcomed into your brand. I don't want to be included or tolerated or part of your inclusion initiative. And I build our own house. Thank you. You know, like, so, so we've also, this is an opportunity for people also who just don't have diversity inclusion conversation to say, no, I'm going to build my own industry. We're going to, you know, we're going to build our own collective of designers. We don't need to be accepted by these groups or kind of trafficked it, you know, bust in to these companies. Wait, yeah, I think that conversation is also a bit of a complex one. Jason and I have spoken about <laughs> this also uh, at length and my position is both things could be true. I think that it's ultimately about access. We should 
and by we, I mean all marginalised communities in terms of minorities, black and brown people, LGBTQ+, larger bodies, uh, differently abled people, we should have equal access to opportunities if we want to be a part of the mainstay or not, if we want to go away and build that for ourselves. But we need the access to be able to do that because even when we talk about breaking away and creating our own businesses, our own media platforms, our own structures you still need the same access to resources or the same level of education or, you know, it really is about that equal access regardless of what you want to do with it or where you want to go. So I, I believe that both can be true, but there is that fundamental foundation that allows both to exist. And I just want to add something to that as well. Kimberly, in terms of that interdependence that would be required in order to make such a movement effective. You know, we've also spoke about that, Henrietta, about there's a there's a true lack of that within the community to rely on. Obviously, we can speak about, you know, the mental conditioning that may go into this, you know, the his, all the historical implication that may go into this, but this is key. I mean, we could talk about all the advancement we want, talk about the perceived community that, that exists in fashion, but if it's disparate and not interdependent and and respectful, I don't know how that could come about. Right, right. And that's a good point to bring up, you know, as we move forward, as 2020 has proven itself to be this hard line of demarcation, you know, from the past to the future, 2019 behind us now, representing old ways, if you will. How do we want to move forward? How much of our baggage, our historical and sociopolitical baggage, are we going to drag with us? And do we have no choice but to drag with us? And what I mean by that is how much longer does race uh, as a construct need to be part of the conversation? Is it relevant to have what websites that point you to all Black-run businesses? And do we need to be pro-Black while I do support those initiatives? There is this questioning of, you know, is that even relevant anymore? Do we need to just be part of the world and and just be complex and, you know, not, you know, is that that sense of community still there? Kind of like what I'm hearing you say, Jason and Henrietta, is sort of, it yeah. is, are we all still together on this? Or is the community, the African diasporic community, getting broken up and fragmented in various ways? And, and, and we've seen Black people, especially in the past, you know, decades, the past hundred years really show examples of breaking away and not wanting to be tethered to being racialized and feeling like they're thinking different, you know, to borrow from Macintosh slogans. And they want to see themselves as beyond race, beyond blackness, and just really trying to see new ways, um, new frontiers of thinking through all of this. And maybe we don't all need to be together in that way. And so it, in some ways that can be hopeful ways or, or new ways of thinking through identity and community and mutual like empowerment. But it's also kind of saddening because it sounds like it's the beginning of the end for bringing back, you know, a sense of community. Maybe we're, we're too far gone from that. And a, and, a, and a disturbing detail that I that I heard about this is that um, there is a di- divide and conquer element that while there's some uh, black and brown people that are ascending the ranks, when they ascend the ranks, they are then separated from their peers into um, from collaboration, from, you know, essentially <laughs> lowering the bridge for their peers to come up, that the industry, the system is also so, so entrenched that it it, it is not designed to ultimately help us to come out of the trenches. And that was a really, that was a disappointing uh, bit of detail just to have discussed in a forum like this, because it made me see how true, in fact, that is. Ooh, and it, it's worked. It's worked for over 100 years, divide and conquer, crabs in a barrel. It has worked. And, you know, we've managed to kind of separate ourselves from skin tone to hair texture to class status, career trajectories, our pedigree, you know, dragging all those brutal class systems, you know, into our language and the way we engage with one another. And so that, Mm -hmm. and that is definitely in terms of, you know, the business of fashion, it's really complicated things in terms of reaching back as you climb, you know, there can, you know, with this sort of, there can, whether it's, there can only be one, 
you know, from a relational perspective where you've got mm-hmm. two black people who maybe are in this kind of precious space and then are cutting their eyes at each other and trying to outdo each other yeah. in terms of code switching. And, you know, <laughs> I, you know, I went here to school or I know this white person, I know this white person, and I know all, I know all these nuances of whiteness. What do you know? You know, and so it, it gets really dirty. And then, you know, or, or sadly, you know, when you do have someone who does want to reach back as they climb, some of them sometimes are like, look, I really want to help you, but I, I've, I've risked it all. Yeah, I've risked it I'm all guess. to be in this space, yeah. and I can't I'm, I'm here because then there's going to be too many yeah. of us. <laughs> and then people, no, but it's true. And I've heard people say that where it's like, I'm here and that is the work. <laughs> I exist, therefore, that is the work, you know, that sort of thing. And and one of the things that's really interesting is that there is this conversation around this system or this structure that hasn't been built for us, that hasn't been built to include us, and that's the ultimate barrier for inclusion across mm. the board as it pertains to fashion. But, like, I, I know you can't necessarily go into too much detail about your work with Gucci, but I want to know... What are the forums that we, as a business, as an industry, what are these spaces and these forums where we could even engage in these conversations in a way that it's not superfluous or you're being overly sensitive? Or are you kidding me? Fashion's so inclusive. I saw that black girl in that campaign. Or you work in fashion. You've got a good job. What are you complaining about? How can we strategically move forward in a way that actually does help to reframe, rebuild this system that historically has not been for us? Like, what are those strategic tactics? Because it seems like brands and the industry are only really deploying these strategies or interested in these strategies after they've royally fucked up. So um, look at H&M having to hire a diversity officer after their racial gaffe, Prada getting racial sensitivity training. If you look at Gucci with all of those systems around their gaffes, look at Dapper Dan, they kind of bestowed this power onto him after he was sort of ripped off and Gucci was called out on social media and then they extended this platform to him. I doubt that would have happened otherwise. So there seems to always be these underlying issues that brings this progress to the forefront. And you could argue that any progress, regardless of its intention, is progress. And I agree with that. But it just seems like it's not a very sustainable model to just be able to be like, okay, brands can only really move forward in a meaningful way Mm -hmm. after they've Mm -hmm. fucked up. And then they have to look at why that happened. I mean, is there a more proactive way to actually help to rebuild the system in a new post-corona era? Yes. And so, you know, and this, this is a complicated response, but it comes back to what we were just saying. And this, and this also includes me saying something that might be unpopular. I'm of the ideology that the only way we can really move forward is community building and drawing each other together as a collective. And the stakes are higher now because as we were just talking about, where like not all skin folk is kin folk, we have become so fragmented now. So the stakes are higher. So coming together and unifying to build our own house, to build our own organizations and build our own standards, our own aspirational brands, it is incredibly difficult because due to globalization and Black people just kind of dispersing throughout the fashion industry and having their own new experiences and having new, you know, more global experiences, um, we all have such, you know, there's homophobia within the Black community. There's just so many issues going on. Colorism, one thing, um, you know, how can we come together? And the only way you can really dismantle these issues of aspiration and detach yourself from the moods and attitudes and and practices of predominantly white run conglomerates and corporations and institutions is to build your own community, build your own institution, but we don't support it. And so I believe Jay-Z has said, we can build these things, but are black people really, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, but especially in terms of fashion, can you expect black people to see it aspirational, you know, the damage psychologically has been done in many ways, Ooh. you know, to where we don't even want that. So, so what I'm going to say that's unpopular is I, after my experiences last year, I actually don't think it is these European brands responsibility to do all these backbends and making us feel welcome. 
Italian brands are good at being Italian brands because they are Italian with all the racism or not, mm. or, you know, but all their delicious food or all their clothing. They are a nation that is and a culture that has built their own material culture. And while they are making these attempts to to embrace diversity and the conglomerates like caring, the CEO at, at caring has said cultural diversity is key. You can't expect it to go beyond and to go at a deeper level that's really going to look out for our best interests. The only people who are going to look out for our best interests are us. But the problem is, are we happy with the home we're in right now and the family members that we're with who could really move this whole thing forward and beyond being accepted by major fashion brands, being accepted by these conglomerates? If you want to be black and work for these brands, go for it. Be my guest. But maybe this is being small minded, but I just I don't expect them to you know, look out for all of your best interests and understand all the nuances of being black or being oppressed, and you know, so that it's so like, how can we build our own kind of strategies that would just be so powerful? Well, you know, something that leapt out leapt out to me from essentially researching you, Kimberly, is the bit on William Edward Gray and the the caricature images from black, oh William Edward from, and the lampooning. Yes. Yes, the lampooning images from Black in the Day, and you'll you'll better be able to articulate that than I than I am. But essentially, there were images of Black people at a certain time where they they were lampooned, they looked overdressed, and they were essentially they were trying to ingratiate themselves into white world by being fashionable. These were the black the, the black people who had a who had a bit of means, and they were the lampooning was really making fun of them. It was saying, "Look at you! You look like a caricature. You're an idiot. You're like a to, monkey in fancy look clothes." Like that. Yeah. Exactly. And that made me think so much of today, all of these kids um, leveraging everything in order to get that money to buy their head-to-toe Gucci or to buy their head-to-toe Prada. Like, I felt that that they were being lampooned in many ways. Like, oh yeah, you come to these doors and you scoop up these garments and you go out there in the world and you influence more of your kind. But you know what? We're lampooning you here in the store. We're lampooning you in the corporate offices. You're fully lampooned and the joke is on you because you are buying the product and you're evangelizing. You need us more than we we need Such you. A sad you state right. Of you need us more than we need you at the end of the day. <laughs> oh, there you go. There you go. But where does then that leave our community? I see, I see you're saying that ultimately it still drives us back into our community for us to figure it out. You, you know, you have you've gone out there, you've gone to Europe, you work with those companies, like you're like, wait, um, no, they're not the answer. But look at what we're faced with intercommunity. It doesn't it doesn't seem to bode so but, well, so, does it? Can I kind of add it to that? Yeah, what has frustrated me has been I am seeing people, people like uh, I think it's Brandis Daniel who runs the Harlem Fashion Row. There's people who've been trying to do this and get attention and say, let's build community, let's support each other. And again, it's sort of like what I was thinking about with Jay-Z, where it's kind of like, okay, I'll build it, you know, but will you come? It's like, but I'm not aspirational enough for you because I'm black. And so, but, but with Brandis, like what she created, what's frustrating is she's built that, but like, I'm also seeing so many other kind of splintered organizations or initiatives of people who are trying to build these communities and fight for freedom and liberation and stuff. But it's like, everyone is kind of off in their own kind of enterprises of doing this work Mm -hmm. who are all black. And it's like, how powerful would it be if we just came together under one roof? I've encountered some black folks who are all about diversity and, 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 you know, social justice, but they've kind of branded themselves in that way. And they're just so caught up in, their own representation and building themselves as a brand for liberation. But meanwhile, they're not even like communicating the people like, you know, like how powerful would it be if we actually work together? You know, I've been snubbed by some of these people who are just like, as I have I, been. I'm not up there enough. I'm not cool enough as to be I in their been. social liberation group or, you know, with, with their initiative, not group, but even just their brand, you know, cause it, cause now we got to create this whole other hierarchy of the people who really matter in, in these discussions and who, it gets to go to all these shows or events, you know, to talk about this and be a vocal piece. And it's like, this is why we won't get anywhere. Well, yeah, if we don't, if we don't all share in dismantling the hierarchy, then um, <laughs> I, the hierarchy will, won't be dismantled. But that does seem to be the, the common takeaway from all of our conversations is that there needs to be some, I don't want to say governing body, but there needs to be some galvanizing and unionizing if that's a word, of marginalized communities to actually 
get an agenda together and move forward collectively the egos, in a cohesive the way. The egos, Kimberly, the egos, that's it. It's like, how are you going to manage that all in a room? You know, I'm even seeing celebrities right now all kind of buying on Instagram for like black, black celebrities who are, you know, all kind of being their own vocal pieces about how we should build the community. And I'm just hearing it from like five or six different celebrities, you know, and none of them are working with each other because they want, they want to be the leader. Yeah. They want the shine. Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> this, this conversation absolutely can carry on. There's so many, there's so many features that I think needs further exploration. There's a, there's a, there, from my research, Kimberly, your, your work on the body, you know, particularly as it relates to race and the industry. I'm, I'm so curious about that. Never mind a very, very, very personal thing that I saw in your resume mm-hmm. as well. Uh, what do you mean that you did a, a, a research and a report on skinhead, the dress signifiers of skinhead oh. back in the eighth grade? I am I'm of that scene, just so you know. I grew up in the New York hardcore really? skinhead scene back in the early 80s. Oh my just god, so I can't, you know. I am not going to tell you that report. That was eighth grade, but that was I mean, I was like, huh, that was like my first fashion studies paper. I well, I will say this, Jason, that um what that kind of now in retrospect, I realize I, I have been obsessed with race for so long, but also in like really bad ways, like self-hatred, admittedly. I mean, I went Mm. through all of it, like many people, many many listeners probably have in various degrees, you know? I grew up in all white neighborhoods, and so, and and listened to, you know, I listened to the Smiths, you know, by my teenage years, and was really into all that. And I had a really hard time, like I was grappling with, you know, being racialized, but also just trying to downplay my blackness, but then really embracing my blackness by the time I was 19 and 20. And I went off to an HBCU and then joined this crowd of people who were just like empowering me and encouraging me to grow up the process. <laughs> but all of this is to yeah. say is just, yeah, that all kind of informed the ways that I think about the racialized body. And I find it so fascinating. Like one person I know is James Spooner, who founded Afropunk. And, you know, it, it, it was a way to create the space. He wasn't really begging to be included in the punk scene, but just at least carve out a space for people who were into that kind of scene in their own ways, Black punk musicians. So. That, and that to me would be one of the advantages of building an infrastructure for ourselves is because the code switching, could, it's it could quite literally break your neck, right? It's exhausting. And I loved that you passed on The Only One, the New Yorker piece on Andre Leontelli. It's like, mm-hmm. don't be don't be threatening, but we love that you're <laughs> we love that you're that bitch. <laughs> don't try to be the CEO or the editor-in-chief, but like don't be the help. You know, it's just all of this, you know, don't, you know, you can't be too white, but don't be too black. And you know, it's so complicated and exhausting and you have so much more of a game to play and I think in this culture today it's very complicated because it's also being commoditized fashion has a recent obsession with blackness but then it's also not understood Mm -hmm. by the people internally that are capitalizing off of that but then when you try to be that voice you're problematic it's like so complicated and exhausting that quite honestly I can imagine that the need to to do something separate to that actually could just be quite I think also uh, we also see this in the art industry where blackness has really been having a moment you know I mean not that black art hasn't been profitable but really Mm -hmm. it's kind of disturbing in the last 10 years just seeing you know what kinds of black art curators were really wanting and what kind of black artists people really wanted to see whether it was you know a more like happier note you know black joy but also black trauma what makes good black art that deserves to be in these at the, the art basil or these institutions also mm-hmm. the appropriation of black food the, the most successful person right now who has kind of adopted black cuisine has been um when oh, i forgot his name something i think johnson he founded sweet chick in brooklyn and and now it's gone global you know it's gone oh, to yeah. london la you know, and so like a white man has now made a, a white it's man, a white man? A, built an empire now off of fried chicken and waffles. Power brokers in art who oh, are wow. black art and, and, and selling it, you know, slinging it left and right, you know, for the top dollar. And it's also food, black food. And so it's just keep an eye on the ball in terms of who's making their their hundreds of thousands of dollars right now or even millions off of black genius, off of things that we made to survive, you know, in some ways, like he's selling collard greens, you know, 
don't get me wrong, the food is delicious, but still, it, you know, and so he's partnered with Nas. So that's one thing that one update that's happened is Nas is with him. But, you know, I can't help. I was just telling a friend like, but what if, what if that whole chicken and waffles empire was run by someone black and global? And there's Marcus Samuelson. Yeah. But is anyone looking if they don't know? Like, I didn't know that about Sweet Chick at all. I actually live near the one in Brooklyn. We don't know that. So if the illusion of inclusion is there, public facing, and no one's really digging deeper beyond the surface because, you know, people have other things to do. Not everyone loves fashion. Not everyone cares that much about the, where the, their clothes come from. To answer from. that, it's, um, uh, it's going to be a little petty, but because a friend of mine who's Asian, we were just like cackling about this um, in a text message last week about that is... We can pick up little things. Sometimes when you see the aver- the aesthetics of a space or like some of the language used and the marketing used, some of it sometimes is a little too on the nose or a little too commodified. And it makes you wondering, like, who, who is the audience? Who are they pushing? Some, some, some flags for, for the listeners right now that you can always keep in mind. If something seems a little too aestheticized, you know, a little too cute and packaged or like too like trying to make it into a thing, like spread love, it's the Brooklyn way, get sweet it. You know, it's, it's something that always gives me like a little, huh, wait a minute. And then I start like Googling the business and then I go into about, and then I look into the team who's running it and I find out, oh, because my friend and I also, there's a Brooklyn Chinese restaurant. And then there were just so many things we observed as a social experiment. We went in there to dine and pick it apart. And it was just so on the nose in terms of interior design, the language they use, the plays on words they used in the menu and stuff. And then, it, you know, it all was like, okay, the people who run this are these hipster kind of. But not to be a pessimist, though, but the nuance of this is really something that you're acutely aware of because of your background and how spaces that you move through um, academically and and just your your knowledge. I don't know that everyone is that knowledgeable, which is kind of my point of isn't just enough to see a few black people on the shop floor, a black model in an ad campaign and think it's all well, good. Well, actually, before you answer that, Kimberly, I, I actually, Kimberly, not taking anything away from your smarts and discernment, but I, I would give credit to I more, agree. To more I agree black people. You. I think mm-hmm. we have... Uh, we have this very intuitive, we have, we know, we see, we have this very intuitive sense and you know when it doesn't feel right. And you also yes. have that sense, Henrietta. It's not necessarily a, I agree. A, an educated one. It's like, you know, you're like, wait a minute, something is, <laughs> this is a little too. <laughs> <laughs> I smell bullshit. Like, remember, remember, remember in the news, that woman? Yeah, like, no, sorry, that's it, fine. It, it, we can rain it back in. I just like um, that thing in the news over a year ago. In Brooklyn, that bar where the, the woman who was white set up this bar in Brooklyn, she had gunshot uh, holes put in it, you know, to kind of add to this rough, black. Oh. Yeah. And oh, she got oh, no, dragged for it. I mean, it, it's something. I, I think she had to close it yeah. or do something, you know, but oh. it's those things. There was a lot. That's. But I want to pick up this point, and we're, we're going to have to bring this conversation to uh, to a close because we could go on and on because it, it can carry on because this is so riveting. <laughs> Let's just talk forever. <laughs> but but you know, I I read this quote that from Gucci, and you know, I'll put this on your lap, being that you have experience with them. Gucci says that uh, the the company essentially is the sum of its employees. And I, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to make sure that we, we deal. Yes, I, I, I heard you when we talk about building things out in our own community, taking our own charge and doing our own thing. But we're still of a world where people feel that they need to go work for the big corporate entity, the one that seems Nothing to be winning, that. the one with mm-hmm. that that's super endowed and super resourceful. So when a brand is saying something like that in this age, particularly going forward after a COVID, how... <laughs> How sincere is that? Is well, that I'm cool? hoping for the best because Marco Bazzari had, to my knowledge, I mean, I don't know how much the pandemic has changed this, but over a year ago when he made the announcement that they were doing this change makers initiative and they were making this um, pledge in terms of diversity and inclusion where it was creating a scholarship for people, for students who were in kind of lower underserved schools or communities to have kind of this pipeline, if you will to be able to intern possibly uh, in Milan or, or work with good experience working with Gucci in some way. They're really big on diversity. And so the retail spaces, their shop. But, oh, the retail spaces. Right, okay, that doesn't impress me, by the way. So, the retail but spaces, I mean, just, but the, since they put this on that. paper and put all their money into that, I'm confident. I'm hoping they will see that through. 
So, I mean, there's that initiative. So that's an example of a brand just doing it kind of, I mean, yes, they were kind of pushed up against a wall through the sweater, the situation with the sweater. So they made good on that in that regard. But then you also have another Italian brand that was pushed up against a wall, but also in a more aggressive way. And that is Prada. Several months ago, it was finally decided that um, the New York Human Rights Council through the work really of an attorney, a black attorney who was upset with the monkey keychains, they have now held Prada mm-hmm. accountable legally. So they have said you they had a whole checklist. It was you must hire a diversity inclusion officer. You have to it's a whole checklist that people can Google, but it was they've held them accountable financially, structurally for like the next few years. And Prada had to like agree to that. And so it was kind of like they were almost in a way getting sued or, and the payment was going to be through this forced diversity and inclusion. So it's going to be in the pandemic of, you know, is Prada still, you know, are they still held to that right now when they come from a country that was the hardest hit in Europe? Can they be released from this whole obligation? Well, one, one of the things I have to note about Prada, because we have discussed it in this forum, and um, I see you, I see you, Prada, and it's very to the, to the end of the conversation that we've been speaking about. And I have seen Prada engage with prominent Black people in this industry. And essentially, I've, I gotta tell you, they have feel like paid off. They have feel paid off to the extent that yep. they are cheerleading about Prada, completely ignoring Prada's yep. very checkered history. And then these Black people who are supposed to be the voice, at least the young voices of progressive of change, they're the ones that are completely erasing this horrible history of this brand. And mind you, I will repeat it here again because I still have a problem with this. Prada completely kept models of color off the runway and in their campaigns for nearly 20 years. That, that to me, caused such racial issues in this business that is going to take decades more to repair. So Prada, I think, is one of the biggest offenders in the history of fashion as it, as it pertains to race. And so I want to make sure that this message is communicated to those young people in this industry who have literally chosen to erase Prada's history and have decided to, in, in fact, laud them in this era. If there's one last thing I can say added to that, because I don't want our illusion of inclusion conversation to be without us. I'm glad you brought that up without us addressing that one other complexity to this whole thing, um, which really speaks to the illusion of inclusion, is yes, I've observed very similar things where I have been baffled after experiencing or, or witnessing the very homogenous kind of executive branches of all of these brands, you know, just how white they can be, I've been kind of astounded seeing all of these Black people, these Black influencers, broadly speaking, on Instagram, just kind of bragging about, you know, being included in a runway show or in this ad campaign, or I got this. And, and I'm like, do you realize that's, that's, that, that's crumbs, you know, in terms of the money that you just got paid to model diversity mm-hmm. for them, you model diversity, you model representation for them without them having to change anything. They haven't had to change any structures. They haven't had to hire oh. any new people. And so you, and so you're happy. And so you're on here on Instagram telling everyone about this brand that you're a model for, that you did this campaign for, and, and not just luxury brands, you know, all these sportswear brands and stuff. And you're just modeling diversity for them. And you get to disseminate this message to all your followers. And the job is done. You know, the brands know that is the most powerful thing that you can do. Like, here's a couple thousand dollars. Will you be part of this campaign? Or here's $10,000 or even $25,000. You want to be part of this? Tell all your friends, your whole network about what we've done and how much we appreciate your black self, you know. And that does it yeah, <laughs> yeah. at the end of the day, because that's such short term money in their minds. It's okay. and meanwhile they get to just amass all this wealth and not change anything. So that's what concerns me most about these things. And and I feel grateful that I was included or brought on as an educator. You know, that's that's kind of the way I want to engage with these brands and getting into their inner structures and, you know, sitting at at the table and talking to them one on one about what I'd like to see done within their structures and educating them where they need me in certain ways. I'm not really interested in just being like a model for their campaign in this surface level stuff. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. A name to attach to based off the back of the work that you've you've done with your career. But I have one question just to sort of end on as it pertains to the illusion of inclusion, because, again, you sort of sit in this kind of, 
unique space where you're an educator in our industry. And I think that's really valuable to the uprising of, of the future class, right? In terms of where we are now, is it an educational component? Do you think that a lot of the work that you do with brands like a Gucci, do you think that that's effective and that is something that should be increasingly almost mandated in these companies? We're seeing it on those Zoom things and all of those like collective come and support us. We're all getting together. And all of those image squares are full of white executives, full of white designers, full of uh, white influencers. Do you think that there should be a more mandated educational approach to this? Because to be fair, if you don't know, you don't know. You'll be surprised at the number of conversations I've had amongst my peers and within the companies I've worked for or just general conversations how people don't even realise that it's such a challenge or the system that they've been indoctrinated in is hugely problematic. So do you think education is a big component to this? a full-time faculty member now at Ryerson because I joined a department run by the School of Fashions run by Dr. Ben, who is a outstanding white ally who gets all of this and understands the need for these conversations to be had. And he knows the power of bringing in a black woman without even a PhD yet and giving her a full-time secured role so that she can do more disruptive work in the fashion industry. You know, he knew the key mm-hmm. to me doing more powerful work is through funding and institutional support. And together, we are now starting the work on creating these sort of modules, these kind of like educational packages that can help the fashion industry understand that education is key to dealing with all these problems that they're facing, whether it's diversity and inclusion or understanding the power of fashion history to inform their future decisions and things like that. So um, I think fashion education is key and that's going to be the, really the wave of the future with academia. And fashion schools are kind of slow to this, but they're starting to realize, oh, we need to have a department that really centers fashion education yeah. as a key to disrupting, you know, the way the fashion industry is run. And this pandemic already landed a hard crack at it already. So I think that the fashion industry is pretty tender to these conversations and a little more open to these things now that we're all realizing there's a whole shopping list of things that need to be changed um, outside of race, you know. So um, that's just another item on the checklist. So this is the perfect opportunity. And also as an educator, the last thing I'll say, um, aside from just focusing on brands and helping them, another thing that is lies at the core of my work is pedagogy as liberation. And being in the classroom and helping black students, Mm. brown students, students who they have everything weighing up against them right now, trying to hold them outside the industry and to be able to talk about history and theory and create classes like fashion and race for them so that they can be seen and heard. And using me, I also use myself as like a connector of like, hey, you know, there's this one black editor I think you could really be great with. Or I know this one black colleague at this, who's a professor at this school they're talking about that very thing. Let me connect you. Helping carve out those pathways for them is so crucial in fashion education right now. Well, Kimberly, this conversation was I love you listening. fantastic. I, I, I have to go and process so much of what you downloaded with us. We look yeah. forward to speaking to you yeah, in the so future. Yeah, so much food for thought. Um, but this is really, really powerful stuff. I thank you so much for your time and, and look forward yes. to... Uh, now we're collaborators. Now we're, you know, we're the real deal as well. Now we're collaborators and it's for us to devise how we can yes, support it was each so, other. Thank you so much for this forward. opportunity. And I just love hearing you two speak. And, and Jason, you're so passionate. Henrietta, you're just so graceful and passionate about all this. Like, yeah, Likewise. this is great. Oh, thank you. <laughs> let's make this, let's make this our mission. Honestly, like you're so right. This is our moment. And I think that in a post-COVID landscape, we could actually really play a big part collectively in dismantling what wasn't Absolutely. working. So let's, I'm excited about this. I think you've been super inspiring and just your work is so integral to thank you. us moving forward. So thank you so, 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 so much. Thanks, Bye. Kimberly. Bye-bye.